Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Welcome to another edition of Off Camera, the show where I get to talk to iconic, creative, curious artists and find out how they got that way. And in this episode, I sit down with actor Lance Reddick. You know, I was excited to have Lance Reddick on and a little intimidated because if you know his work from The Wire or from Bosch or from Fringe or Oz or Lost, you know he's a pretty powerful, authoritative guy. But when he was growing up, Lance Reddick was a really shy kid. And as one of the only African-Americans at his school, he never felt like he fit in. And his introverted nature made him an easy target for bullies. In the face of those struggles, Lance had to confront his own self-perception at an early age. As he says, in order to escape the trap of trying to fit into places where people try to define me, or how they define being black, I had to find a sense of myself that was independent from that. Well, that's where the arts came in. During his college years, Lance discovered that he had a talent for music and acting. As he says, when I was on stage and it was going well, I felt powerful, which was something I wasn't used to feeling in front of a bunch of people. Despite his natural talent for acting, he took a detour to pursue his first love, music. And when that didn't pan out, he tried an equally risky route, applying to Yale's drama school. And to his surprise, he got in. Being one of the oldest students in his class didn't deter him, and neither did going from one risky aspiration to another. Lance was just determined not to have a regular job and felt like he wasn't qualified for a regular job. Well, luckily his experience at Yale changed his life and his approach to the craft, and he's become a successful, steady working actor, beloved on some of the greatest shows ever on television, like the aforementioned Wire, and now most recently, Amazon's Bosch and Comedy Central's Corporate. Lance joins off camera to talk about his most terrifying moment on stage, confronting systemic racism in the industry, and about the time he serenaded his crush, only to get turned down in humiliating fashion. So pull up a chair and listen in. Hi, Lance. Hi, Sam. I'm glad to have you on here because I'm a huge fan of Bosch. And Wait, were you a fan of the books? I was a fan of the Before, books, Okay, yeah. got it. But, you know, I think that the series has done really well, and seeing you in that role after seeing you on The Wire, it's good to have you here. And, you know, you've been on so many television shows throughout the years, from Lost and Fringe and Oz. And what I notice is that you've played a lot of authority figures. And yes. you carry yourself just externally with this sense of authority that it is powerful, so much so that I asked permission you know, to go to the bathroom from you in my own studio. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you have one of those cases of, I'm sure when you run into fans or people that they have this wrong first impression of you because of these authority figures you play. Well, you know, being a classically trained actor and, <clears throat> and my thing in drama school and uh, what I really worked hard at was being a transformational actor. So, um, I, I, you know, Meryl Streep and Daniel Day-Lewis are my favorite actors, so I just thought right. that that's what acting was. And it took me a long time to realize that most stars play uh, kind of versions of themselves. <laughs> and so, and, 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 and casting tends to be um, about who, who executives think you are. Right. I mean, just to give you an example um, of how much people, th- people want to peg you, uh, they didn't want to see me for Daniels. Oh, uh, really? Yeah. On yeah, the wire? On the wire. Because I had just played two drug addicts in, in a row. I, I had played, the, the year before, I was, a, I, was a, I, was a, uh, I was an undercover cop, but I was a heroin addict in Oz. Yep. And the year before that, in the corner, I played a crackhead, which is the first time I worked with David. Right. So Daniels was one of those things where, even though 
I thought that that was the role that was right for me, they wouldn't see me. And then I don't even know how it happened, but eventually they saw me, and then they passed. <laughs> and then I thought it was done. And then, I, then a couple weeks later, I got the call out of the blue that uh, I got the role. So what I hear you saying is that at the time, you were sort of being typecast as someone who played undercover roles, drug addicts, yeah, the, the, criminals, and then, yeah, and then yeah. you're, you're trying to get this role so, that, that then becomes the new version of typecasting. Well, I mean, I didn't think of it as typecasting at the time. Right, It right. wasn't until, once again, you know, they wouldn't see me for Broyles, Fringe. First they, wanted, they saw me for Charlie three times. Right. <laughs> uh, and then finally they saw me for, for Broyles, and then they passed. I mean, it was almost exactly the same thing. No and then kidding. a month later, and once again, I thought it was gone. And then a month later, out of the blue, I got a call. They want to see you for Broyles again. They want to see you tomorrow. Right. And then within five days, I had the role. After like three auditions like, day, like in a row. But then once you sort of land into those two roles. That, that's when it became problematic. Yeah. And it's to the point where I almost said no to Bosch. Because when the offer came, quite frankly, I read it and I flipped out. I started yelling, swearing. I said, I, fucking, I told him no more cops. And right. I, I went to call my agent. And as I went to call her, I noticed that I had a, uh, uh, I had a message. So I, just, I don't know why, but I decided to listen to the message first. And it was from my agent. And she said, Lance, you're getting a, an offer. Uh, don't freak out. I need to talk to you about it first. And you've already freaked out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the other thing was, at the time, I was, I was actually trying to develop a comedy for myself based on a skit that I did on Funny or Die called Toys Are Me. But then I called Michael Connolly and we talked. And, I, I, you know, at the time it was, well, it's supposed to be just a recurring role the first season. And so I'm thinking, well, I still got a year to develop my show. And if I get my show, then I'll just kind of no, try to win both. Yeah. Or, or you, yeah, right. Yeah, that's what I was really what I tried to do. But I swear to you, the day it was announced in the trades that Bosch was being picked up, uh, they called my agent and said, we want to make him a series regular first season. Really? Yeah, and I was like, fuck. <laughs> um, I love that you get all these offers, <laughs> and your, your first response is, this is terrible. <laughs> I mean, it, it, was, it, it, it took me like a week and a half, almost two weeks to decide, like to the point where the producers were getting pissed. Um, because I, I, I didn't want to do something that was going to... I thought this could be the nail in the coffin in terms of typecasting. Right. And it, it really was kind of just a, a, a leap of faith and a bird in the hand and, you know, I got a mortgage and all that stuff. Right. But then the thing about it is the same year that, like the same fall that we shot the pilot for uh, Bosch, I shot John Wick, uh, the guest got into Sundance, and I played Papa Legba on, um, on uh, American Horror Story. So suddenly I was getting all these roles that were completely different um, in, in television and in film. Right. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting thing to think about. Obviously, we are who we are as kids, and I think that shapes our, our mental picture of ourselves. And it's very hard to shake that mental picture. And I was curious with you if there was a time when, you, when there was a disconnect between the way you were coming off to people versus the way you saw yourself inside. It's interesting. That's pretty much since I was seven or eight, that was the case, just because of being black. How so? What do you mean? Well, so, you know, I, my, uh, my mother taught in the, the, the public schools in Baltimore. So, okay. And she did that for 40 years. And as a matter of fact, my parents met teaching the same high school. Really? Um, but uh, my mother's attitude was, I teach in the, in the 
public school, so he's not going there. My, my dad was like, public school's good enough for me, but, she was, but my mom kind of, she was the last word. So I always went to private school. Okay. And once I got to junior high and high school, it was predominantly white, predominantly upper middle class. Okay. And so I always felt like, to white people, I, was, I, I represented something, this black person, that to me, I was just Lance. I, you know, my, I wasn't my race. Uh, and, and to black people, as soon as they heard me talk, I was something other than black. Oh, that's interesting. So you, I always felt like I, I, I just always felt like I never fit anywhere. Right. So and and because I was shy and I was kind of nerdy and I, I um you know, I was I, I skipped from I skipped second grade. So uh, and there was this one guy in in that third grade class and he just was the tear. He was the bane of my existence. Uh, uh, he just terrorized me all through elementary school. And he was my bully, but not, it wasn't just, he, the thing that's weird about it, it was a very small parochial school. So there are only about 20 kids in a, each class. When I say each class, I mean each grade. Right. So, and it, it was this weird dynamic where uh, I kind of became the class whipping boy, like everybody started making fun of me. So and how did you cope with, I mean, like, acting out? Did your parents? Like, did they know well, the other thing that was, was, was weird that messed with my head was that they skipped me around. So they skipped me from first to third, and then in fourth grade, halfway through the year, they put me back to third. And then the next year, they skipped me to fifth again. Fifth. So then I'm with the same group really? of kids that bullied me. And then halfway through that year, I'm, they moved me back to fourth, so I'm with kids my own age again. Uh, and then sixth grade, when those older kids were gone, that was, gra- that was a great year for me. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And so then I went to another... What I was your to. prevailing picture in your head? Like, when you think back of that time up until fifth grade or whatever. What's the picture in your head of what your day-to-day existence was? Getting through the day so that I could get home and get lost in fantasy watching television. Really? Yeah. So I became addicted to television. And so for me, like, you know, I wanted to be all those cops. I wanted to be Bruce Lee. I wanted to be the guy that got the girl. Do you know what I mean? That got the girl. Because it was the other thing. I was, I was, I was, uh, I, I, I started, uh, studying piano when I was six. Okay. And I started writing songs when I was seven. So I was also, also this, we- this weirdly romantic little kid. Like, I wrote my first love song for this girl uh, in third grade, and then I sang it to her. And I was waiting for this, this you know, cinematic TV response where she said, oh, that's wonderful. And I sang the song to her, and there's this pause, and then she's just staring at me, and then she bursts out laughing, and then she runs down the hall, and she starts, tells everybody what I did, oh, and then, then they start making fun of me. That's humiliating. So, <laughs> Yeah, and that was when I was seven years old. Do you remember the chorus of the song? Uh, oh, Gray. Don't, I mean, I made up words just to make them rhyme. Don't be Mari Gray. You know I'm sorry, Gray. You know that I love you. Oh, I mean, it was, you know, I was seven. Wow. Yeah. I, I was, this was not Mozart. Her. It sounds like you had this rich inner fantasy life that was artistic and musical, but then you also felt powerless at school. So you yeah. wanted to be Bruce Lee and you wanted to be yeah. anyone in authority that that could handle these kids. Yeah, and high school wasn't a lot better. When did you grow and, and sort of like come into yourself uh, physically? Well, physically, I always, um, I was always a big kid. You were? Yeah. Did you ever just turn around and like clock somebody? I smacked somebody run- once. I'm ashamed to say it was a girl. And it, was in, it was in fourth grade. Um, and it was, it was that class where the, all the kids were picking on me. There was this small landing that you could uh, uh, walk down to get to, to the, the classroom in the basement and also led out to the playground. And there was a kid sitting on the steps. And I thought, you know what, I bet I can jump over him. Right. So I went to jump over him, you know, and being 
eight or nine, I'm just not aware. And I, and I literally, with all my might, I jump over him and I bash my head into this ceiling. Right. So literally, like I saw stars and I got a huge welt on my head. And so um, I'm crying and then I'm, 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 my head is aching and all these kids were laughing at me and I don't even remember what, after it happened and I don't remember why, but they were just, they, I just, my memory is that they were, they were just all laughing at me and she just happened to be the one closest to me that was laughing. And I just went back and I smacked the shit out of her. Really? Yeah. And then, and, and also it was time for us to go, go to recess. So then I go on a playground and because, you know, I got a, this, this headache, I, I basically sat on the bench the whole recess. And then when we came in, I asked my teacher if I could go to the nurse. She said, you can't go to the nurse. There's nothing wrong with you because you, you, you hit Andrea before you went out to the playground. You're fine. So I'm sitting there through the, rest of, through the rest of the afternoon with this massive headache and this welt in my head. And the teacher doesn't believe me because I smacked this girl. God, you know, I, I so relate to feeling that way in school, just like not having an ally. And I think it takes a long time to break that self down. Long time, long time. Like, did you feel re- repercussions from feeling that way in a social group for a long time that you had to, like, re-examine? I'm constantly re I mean, even, even now I re-examine it. Really? Yeah, you know, it's funny. When my wife and I, it was shortly after we got, we got married and there was some event I wanted to go to. And having not been used to having somebody with me all the time, I thought, I thought it was best if I went by myself. And I said, uh, she said, you want me to come? I said, no, I don't think so. Um, it's work. Now I know she's my secret weapon because she's the opposite of me. I mean, she's, she can make friends with any, you know, standing on a street corner. Uh, and, she's, and she's also, um, she's brilliant at reading people. Um, but she, sa- she looked at me when I said that and she said, really? But you don't talk to people. So I still, I mean, you know, I mean, uh, industry events are not bad for me now because enough people recognize me that that'll start a conversation. But if I'm by myself, I'm just standing in a corner. That's just never changed. That You're just classic introvert. Yeah. And I didn't even understand that, that. I thought I was shy. I didn't even understand that it was actually like introversion is actually a physiological like a thing about how people manage energy. What fascinates me is that you've wanted to do two things in your life and they both require such interaction with people. Oh, well, yeah, that's true. That's true. That's true. I, I would think it would make it harder to get what you wanted. Well, one of the things that I discovered when I was in college, and I kind of stumbled onto it, believe it or not, through one of my piano teachers from high school, was the EST training, which later became Landmark Education. And so um, that really was the beginning of me learning about being myself, it's been so many years since I did it, but I feel like it's something that I, to this day has, 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 uh, has sh- uh, shaped how I approach uh, problems. And beginning to understand that there are lots of ways of exploring, of, of exploring being. You know, we can explore it psychologically, we can explore it philosophically. He said in the Landmark Forum, we actually try to explore being in the domain of being. So it's actually almost an ontological exploration of being. So, for example, you have an interaction with somebody. And your response, your emotional response to them is that they're an asshole. Or rather, right. they're an asshole is, the, uh, is how you language your response to them. And the, it's, it, that's, a, that's just a simple example. But uh, what that, what, in Landmark, what you would do is you would say, well, it's possible that they're not an asshole. They are them. And asshole is an interpretation that you're creating. And the other thing, you know, most people think that they think all day long. 
But are you really thinking most of the time or are thoughts doing something to you? Right. And the thing that I feel like, you know, helped me the most later on when I went, when I started acting, uh, when I started pursuing acting, was the notion that um, the most important thing that a human being can do is to try to be authentic. Right. And, the, and it, it also was the notion that um, human beings, by definition, are inauthentic. So for me, when I watch great acting, that's the thing. I, that's one of the things I always see is authenticity. Whether it's whether it's somebody playing essentially kind of themselves, or for example, for example, um, I hope I didn't get myself into trouble. But um, you know, Daniel Day Lewis tends to play extreme characters that are completely different and very different from maybe who he is. Right. Gene Hackman, although I think he's one of my favorite actors, but. Uh, the characters seem to be much closer to him. He never really changes his rhythm, his, you know what I mean? But he's always so authentic. It makes him incredibly watchable. Yeah. So one of the things that really helped me was trying to not be shy and trying to not be nervous and just be that. You know, do you know what I mean? And, and do what I needed to do anyway. Right. But the truth is, from an early age, even when I was in junior high school and high school, I realized that I was obsessed with the questions uh, what's, what's the meaning of life, and why do people do what they do? And I realized that the only way to kind of escape the trap of, of trying to fit into places where everybody seemed to try to define me in one way or how they defined being black, I would have to try to find, try to, uh, find a sense of myself that was uh, independent of that. When you say defined by being black, what, do, what does that mean? Like, could you attempt to explain your difference of the experience you had with those kids versus who you were inside? Just going through the day, uh, and y- your experience of, of just going through the day is going to be different from mine, because not just because we're different people and we have different experiences, but because I, I'm always on the alert for things that are signal, signaling that people are re- interacting with me according to my race as opposed to just interacting with me. It, it's, ev- it's every day. Yeah. Yeah. Any black person will tell you the same thing. You know, that brings up a question about, you've played a lot of law enforcement or security, heads of security or cops or whatever. So you have a, a real deep understanding of, and I'm sure respect of the profession. I have very mixed feelings about the profession. Right. I was, well, that's what I was going to ask you, is how you sort of balance that out for yourself. Well, first of all, The Wire was the first, was my, see, you know, it's, I've had such an interesting experience when it comes to law enforcement, because I, I, I may be the only black man I know that has never been stopped by the cops for being black. Do you think that's just coincidental, or do you think it's... Well, given that I think it is... uh, I personally think it's a cultural phenomenon, not a personal phenomenon. I feel like it would be... It's it's a little hubristic of me to think that uh, I have some way of being that that has made me immune somehow. So, yeah, I haven't had awful experiences with cops. Right. But I I also don't pretend that that's because... I'm the black guy that's acting the right way. No, I would think, uh, quite honestly, it's probably just luck of the draw. That's what I think. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, folks, let's take a little break from the conversation so we can talk about this week's sponsor, Quip. 
Now, if you listen to this show, you know about Quip because ever since they became a sponsor, which I think was right when they were starting as a company, my whole family has used Quip. And what is Quip? Well, it's a revolutionary way to take care of your teeth. And, and you know, we're inundated these days with offers for subscription services. And frankly, a lot of things don't need to be subscription services. But when it comes to your teeth and the health of your mouth and your breath, having a subscription toothbrush system makes a lot of sense. And that's because when your bristles get old and nasty, or your toothbrush stops powering up, or you run out of toothpaste, those are all not good things for long-term gum and teeth health. So Quip came up with this great system. First off, the toothbrush is like something that came off of the NASA assembly line, or straight out of Apple's design headquarters. It's a sleek, beautiful toothbrush, and every time you get a new brush head, you get a new battery, so you never have to worry about it not working. You never have to charge it. It comes with this amazing carrying case that doubles as a travel case so you can stick it to the mirror. We all know that feeling of being in a hotel and seeing your bristles accidentally face down on some hotel bathroom counter. Nobody wants that. So Quip's basically developed the perfect system. And let me tell you a little bit more. There's a two-minute timer, which is great for my kids because it allows you to know how long you need to brush. And the vibrations are great because they're not too hard, which can be bad for your gums. And there's 30-second pulses, so it can help you divide up your mouth into quadrants. And you know, good habits matter to live a healthier life. And Quip can help you form fresh oral habits. And in the case of my daughters, hopefully there'll be habits that are ingrained for life. Also, with every new brush head comes a new tube of toothpaste. And I happen to really like Quip's toothpaste. It doesn't taste medicine-y or chemical-y or over-flavored. It's just good toothpaste. So here's the deal. If you haven't tried this system, what are you waiting for? You listen to this show. You hear me talk about it. So give Quip a try. And because they've been a longtime sponsor, they want to give a special deal to off-camera listeners. Quip starts at just $25, and you can get your first refill free at getquip.com slash off-camera. This is a simple way to support our show and start brushing better, but you have to go to getquip, that's G-E-T-Q-U-I-P, dot com slash off-camera to get your first refill free. Go right now to G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash off-camera. Now back to the show. Take me back, because I know you originally went to college for physics. Well, my first year I was a physics major. Yeah. Right, and then yeah. you switched to a music major. No. Uh, but then you dropped out of college to pursue music full-time. I, I realized I do not want to be a classical composer. I want to be a rock star. I have since I was seven years old, and I watched the Partridge Family every Friday night. Really? Yeah, David Cassidy was... <laughs> that is another I, point of rel- I, I think I, I, I think I, the Partridge I, Family is my first reference of watching like a band. <laughs> I, I, I say this jokingly, but David Cassidy was the first white man I ever wanted to be. <laughs> yeah, I got you know I I got a uh, I got a drum set for Christmas when I was ten, and yeah. I would I would come home and I would uh, put on a Partridge Family album and I would play <laughs> I'd play drums to the entire thing and then I'd put. The I don't know if you yeah. want people knowing that. Well, it's too late now. It's, uh, <laughs> so so you so you dropped out of school and you're like I'm I'm going to go for this. Uh, tell me at this point had you met your wife? Had you had a daughter yet? Yes. So I, had, I met my wife while I was in college. And she actually lived in New York City, and I was in Rochester, New York. So it's, it's seven hours away. Okay. So it was a long-distance relationship. And I dropped out of school, and we got married like the summer after I decided not to go back. What did she think of your dream to do that? Like, what was her take on you taking this risk? Well, I mean, she was an artist. She didn't have a problem with that. Right. Particularly since we were, I mean, we were, 20, we were 24. 
So you didn't have any money. Yeah, it didn't we, yeah, we, were, we were kids and we had dreams of being great artists. Right. Yeah. First thing I, you know, we got married and then we, lived, we found a, an apartment in Gloucester, which is the sister town. Um, and so that we started living there. And so I, I, I got, um, I found a job doing construction within a couple weeks. Yeah, you, you said something that I read that I thought was really interesting and I wanted to see if you could uh, elaborate on it. You said that uh, being a working class black man was an education in itself. It was. Because of all the stigma that I attached to just being black growing up um, and how much I wanted people to see me and not my blackness, uh, and given how, how the, all the opportunities with education that I had, to me, the, the, the worst thing in the world was actually have to flip burgers. So it shows you how immature I was. It's a, it's a child's way of thinking. <laughs> but that was one of the things that I had to unpack once I got married. So like, shoot, man, I got to learn how to work. Right. Yeah. I was curious if there was a, if there was a time when your musical dream met up with the reality of the world and, and you kind of had to take a hard look in the mirror and say, this isn't happening like I thought it was going yeah, to happen. Yeah. So one of the things that happened uh, almost immediately from moving to from uh, moving to Boston was I hooked up with a recording studio. Okay. And, we, and I did a demo tape. Um, they watered down the music. Uh, how I how I found this recording studio was it was an ad on the radio. It was called AAA Recording. Yeah. And it was just after. Let me see. This was '86. After maybe two years, I started realizing, and, and Suzanne Strick was trying to tell me about a year and a half into it, she's like, you know, these guys aren't doing anything. And then I did another demo, and then I tried to do an acting video just because I thought that would help the music, you know. Then I did a music video, and I'm, I'm sinking more money into it. I'm borrowing money to do more stuff with this recording studio. Uh, and then I had a back injury while I was working that really changed everything. Well, two things changed everything. One was my daughter was born, uh, and then I really had to learn how to work. Right. And that was the year before the back injury. So by the time she was born, I was working three jobs seven days a week. And about a year into this, I, had, uh, I went from a double shift of waiting tables to a double shift of delivering newspapers. And the, the, uh, I delivered the Wall Street Journal. And so I delivered really big, heavy bundles to the financial district. So um, I was fried. And I also, I was, I was always working on sleep deprivation and I was always working on adrenaline. Right. So it's five in the morning, been up for 24 hours working. I go to pick up this bundle and I just feel something go on my back. And I'm like, that's weird. And then I just kept going, and I figured, well, I'll work it out, or I'll work, it, I'll work through it when I work out tomorrow. And I noticed the next day it was still bothering me. I was like, that's odd. Well, I'll work through it the next day. And each day it got progressively worse. And then uh, it, within two weeks, it was like I woke up one day and I couldn't get out of bed. And, you know, while I was lying in bed, you know, I'm, I'm looking at the ceiling, and I'm thinking, we need the money. I need to be working. And, but I was also thinking, you know what? If I keep doing this, I'll be doing this for the rest of my life. How do I think outside the box? I thought, well, I don't have any money. I don't have any connections. What do I have? I said, well, I know I can sing, and I know I can act, because I acted in college. So I said, well, let me try that. So I went and I got um, the uh, Boston uh, Phoenix, which was their version of the Village Voice, and I just started looking for auditions, and I went to two musical theater auditions. And I'm sitting in there, and these people are real singers, and I'm just a guy with a nice voice. I'm like, this is not it. <laughs> and then, I don't know why, but I, I went on this straight theater audition. So I go to this audition, and we, we had to prepare two contrasting monologues. Okay. So um, 
there was a show on at the time called The Bronx Zoo starring Ed Asner. And so uh, there, there was this great monologue he had at the end of the pilot. And I went and I, I auditioned. And after my audition, the director says, wow, that's acting. Where did you study? And I'm like, no place. I hadn't, I hadn't studied. No kidding. So when you came to your wife and said, yeah, I'm going to put these musical dreams away and I'm going to try acting, was she like... I know. I know. It was, it was, it was, it's outrageous. It's, it is. That's whenever and people ask me for advice on how to become a successful actor, however you do it, don't do it the way I did it. Right. I, right. Yeah, but yeah. Did you ever sit down and run the numbers of like, this career is really hard anyway. It's harder as an African-American. It's like, did you ever, well, that did you stuff, ever do the calculations on the risk or? No. No. Never. That was one of those things where I just feel like I was guided. Even the way that Yale happened. Right. Because you got into Yale. Yeah. So, one of the things you said that I found really interesting was that you talked about loving acting because you could be somebody else and you could start to express the things that you felt uncomfortable expressing in real life. So Yeah, when I think back to what my experience was, uh, particularly in college, which is when I really started acting, it was for the first time feeling like there's this cool thing that I can do, that I just have something that I, I noticed a lot of people other people don't have. Could you even define what that thing was? It was something about being able to just to be real, but at the same time powerful on stage. And did you feel powerful inside at that time? I was beginning to grow up. Right. When I was on stage, if it was going well, I felt powerful. Something that I wasn't used to feeling in front of a bunch of people. I guess I put myself in your shoes and go, okay, I worked really hard at this music thing for a long time and it's not panning out. And then well, I'm here's trying the thing, acting. I, and I did and I didn't. Because I never really, you know, when I was in Boston at, at that time, I really was only working with the recording studio. I didn't really go on auditions to try to get part of, become part of a band. I didn't try to put my own band together. Do you know what I mean? You had your toe in, but you didn't go yeah, all in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that required all those things that we talked about. Uh, the kind of uh, engaging people and selling myself in ways that I just had no idea how to do. It felt incredibly ill-equipped. How come you think you were able to go all in with acting when you couldn't with music? Because with music, I always thought of myself as a songwriter first, so as a singer-songwriter. So it was having to kind of create my own corporation. With acting, I'm just going on auditions. I'm just, a, I'm just, it's just a job. Yeah. And, 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 and what happened was I started to become um, in love with the craft. It, uh, it was almost by accident. And the other thing was, was that um, my attitude about the craft changed as I started to act professionally. Because I thought, I have this thing, I'm good at it, and I can do this, and I can be a star, and all I have to do is just do that thing that I'm good at. Right. But the thing that I started noticing was that the bigger the roles got, if the, if the script wasn't good, or, the, or I didn't have a good director, uh, I would be lost. It, my performances were literally hit or miss depending on the night and, because I didn't have any technique. And so one of the things that I did consistently while I was uh, pursuing acting uh, in Boston was I worked as an artist model. And so I would go to his studio and I'd sit in this chair and he'd paint me and we'd just talk for three hours. And one, t- one day uh, we'd talk, I, he asked me about training for acting and I said, well, you just learn as you go. Even though in my head I knew it was kind of bullshit. Right. And I said, you know, I just, I just want to go to New York. 
I just want to, and I want to go to the actor studio, and I want to do theater, and I want to be a movie star. And I said, the only other, and this is, this is how full of shit I was. I said, the only other place I'd even consider is Yale. And I can't, I couldn't get into Yale anyway because I never finished my bachelor's degree. So I say this bullshit, and he says to me, well, you know, you might want to consider applying to Yale because I got my master's in painting from Yale, and I don't have a, a bachelor's degree. And I thought, huh. And I don't know why that stuck with me, but I left there, and the next day I called information, I called the drama school, and I asked them. It's kind of amazing hearing you talk. Like, the, the level of delusion or, or just uh, focus that you can have at that age of, well, I'll just do this. And, and you it wasn't consider- like I was dying to go to Yale. That, right. lot, that was my backup plan. <laughs> like, my first, you know, my A plan was to go to New York and go to the actor studio and be a movie star and, and, and win a Tony on Broadway. And so then when I got in, I was like, oh, shit, what do I do? Right. Because even when I applied, Suzanne was like, what do you apply? What? She was like, are you crazy? Do you want to go to school? I said, no. She said, why are you applying? I was like, I, I yeah, don't Yeah, what was her level of dealing with you kind of new careers and... <laughs> She hung in there for a long time. Let me yeah. tell you. I mean, it was interesting because you know, I, I said, once I got in, I was like, I don't know what to do. And so I did something that I had gotten completely out of the habit of doing, which was I asked everybody their opinion. And I, I, I went to a casting director and I asked her opinion. And he said, oh, no, just go. You want to just go to the L.A. and do movies. And I, and, and, but every single actor I talked to, every single one was like, you got to Yale, you have to go. Right. And then, I don't know, maybe a week or two into, in this, into this process, I was talking to Suzanne about it, and she said, Lance, I think you should go. I was like, you do? She said, yeah. And I said, well, I'm not going to go unless you come with me. She said, well, of course, we'll move with you. I was like, oh, you will? I said, well, I'm not going to go if they don't give me financial aid. And then they gave me a bunch of financial aid because I had a wife and a kid. So it was like, oh. Now I have I to I guess go. I'm going. <laughs> <laughs> and so I went, yeah. And it changed my life. That's amazing. When were you the brokest? Wow. Um, I don't know. There's been a few of those. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right before I started acting, when my daughter was about a year old, we actually had to move and move in with another family because we couldn't pay our rent. Really? Yeah, they took us in and we lived with them for a year. No kidding. Yeah, that's the kind of, that's the kind of friendship you don't forget. Yeah. Was there ever a moment where you said, I got to just get a real job and quit this pursuit like what kept you going knowing that I could never do a real job first of all what was I I was a college dropout what was I qualified to do believe it or not the one time I thought about that was the summer of 99 oh after you after you yeah um so uh my ex-wife had moved out two years earlier oh so you guys Um, split up we split up yeah we split up in 97 I graduated in 94. We split up in 97. I was broke. And we had joint custody, so I still had the kids every other week. So uh, the end of the year's coming, and I'm running out of money. And then I got the siege, and that was great. You know, I'm working with Ed Zwick and Denzel Washington. Yeah. And, uh, and then that job lasted for like a month and a half. And that was the first time I came to L.A., too. I'd never been to L.A. So I was here in L.A. for three weeks. Right. And then a few months later, I'm running out of money, and I don't know what's, what's going to happen. And then I got I Dreamed of Africa. And then, so then, then I was in South Africa for two and a half months. Then after that was over, <laughs> I got back in like September of 98. And then pilot season was, was coming up. But I got the, the opportunity to audition for um, Mark Anthony at the Guthrie Theater. Okay. And I got it. <laughs> and then I got back and I missed pilot season. So then it was, and it got really bad. Like... I, sh- I shorted my babysitter and she stopped returning my calls. The landlord was trying to get me. I was like, I, w- I was literally like 
checking down the street before I'd go out the door. So if I would go to an audition, so my, I wouldn't run into my landlord. So you had months without work. It was six months. It was bad. And then I got the corner, and then it snowballed. Then the corner. Then so the in those six months, you started to contemplate. I was like, a, a I need to or... something else. But but the the flip side of it was was I was like, I, I, given the financial straits that I'm in, what else am I going to do? I have to make it. I just I just have to find a, figure out a way to make it. Right. Hey folks, let's take another little break from the conversation so I could tell you about this week's sponsor, Acuity Scheduling. Acuity Scheduling is the software that I wish I had when I was starting my business. And I want to tell you about it because they've been a sponsor for a while and they're doing a really great thing for anyone with a business who wants to make their lives easier and their scheduling smarter and more efficient. Acuity Scheduling works 24-7 behind the scenes to fill your calendar and takes hours of work off your plate. From the moment clients book with you, Acuity is there to automatically send booking confirmations with your brand and messaging. They can deliver text reminders, let clients reschedule on their own, and process payments so your day-to-day runs smoother, even as business gets busier. With Acuity Scheduling, all you need to do is show up at the right time. Acuity has the ability to manage multiple locations and employees, class bookings, private sessions, add-on sales, and even recurring subscriptions. Basically, Acuity can adapt to any business. So keep your clients prompt with text and email reminders and dramatically reduce appointment no-shows with deposits or full upfront payments. And you can collect everything you need to know about a client as soon as they book by asking clients to fill out intake forms. That way you can keep all their information neat and tidy in one place. And you can get notified anytime a new appointment is booked. They make it really easy to check your schedule right from your phone and even tell Acuity to automatically update the calendars you already use. Acuity can keep your entire life in sync. So save yourself the day-to-day drudgery of having to keep up with your clients and your busy schedule by using Acuity Scheduling. And for our listeners, for a limited time only, you can get 45 days of Acuity Scheduling absolutely free with no credit card required by going to acuityscheduling.com slash camera. That's acuityscheduling.com slash camera. And now let's get back to the conversation. I want to jump forward to The Wire for a minute because looking at that show in retrospect, it was such a success and considered one of the greatest shows ever on television and people talk about it with reverence. But at the time, that was not the case. And it it wasn't winning awards. It It was barely coming back every season. And there was this misconception, I think, that your career would blow up when you got the wire and the opposite. I happened. had that misconception. Right, <laughs> yeah. right. But I guess I was curious about what the indifference to that show taught you about the business. Well, for me, that was the, I'd always known that there was racism in the business, but I always thought that the level of my work would rise above it. And that was the first time I saw how instant how entrenched and how deep the racism was. Um, because it wasn't just me dealing with it. It was like us dealing with it. Like, I mean, we were on at the, we were the lead into The Sopranos. We were on at the same time as The Sopranos and Six Feet Under and Entourage and Sex in the City. All those shows were getting award nominations up the ass and we were, it was like crickets. And you knew you were making something great, oh, we right? Knew, we knew how good we were. We knew how good we were. Yeah. And, and not only that, it's, here's something that's really interesting. It was really telling me. I was, um, 
When I first, I first moved out here in 2005, so it was in between the third and fourth seasons of The Wire. We had an 11-month hiatus, and it took six months to, month to decide whether or not to pick us up. So we were all auditioning uh, for other pilots in second position. Really? And I, I uh, met this uh, a black manager, at, uh, I don't want to say who he is, but at a very prominent uh, management firm. Um, and he was, he was considering uh, working with me. And we were talking about The Wire, and he said, you know, I don't understand what it is. I cannot get my white colleagues to watch that show. And I was like, wow. That's wild. I think you said that the period after The Wire was one of the hardest periods to get work for you, right? Like- it, it seemed nearly impossible for me to get seen for film. It was just like, where's the... And it wasn't even like, I'm not getting offers. Like, I'm not getting auditions. I'd like get a handful of auditions... Either it was, a, it was always a cattle call for a big movie or it was an audition for a little role in a little movie. I'm right. like, what the, what the fuck, man? Um, which is part of the reason why I moved out here in the middle of the, uh, of the run of The Wire because I thought that would help. I wondered for you how often there were situations throughout your career where you identified racism, whether it was how a character was written or something that happened on set or, or an overall bias in a script that was sort of not even consciously picked up by the director? Well, for me, it was more the, the lack of opportunity. You know, lack of opportunity, you know what I mean? It was, it was um, like even after, after Fringe, I remember there was... Uh, Fringe ended in 2013, was the last season aired. Um, that pilot season, it was like there was nothing for... There was literally nothing for me. There were two, it was two, like... Token. What one was was a was a, actually a, a, a sitcom, but it was a, it was a cop, a commanding officer. I'm like, I don't want to do that. And the other was the token black lieutenant. And I was like, I don't want to do that. Well, that's the question: is if it was just sort of the ceiling of what kind of roles you were going to be able to see. You have to accept it because it's reality. But uh, I've never liked it, and I've never accepted it like it's like like I'm going to lie down for it. Let me give you an example. So I was shooting this TV show video game thing, and it, two young white guys, and they were complaining about how often they'd gotten this close to getting the lead in a TV series. And I'm like, how often you've gotten this close to getting the lead in a TV series? How often, like, I can count on one hand, and I don't need all my fingers, how often I've gotten to audition for the lead in a TV series. Right. And I, I mean, I mean uh, maybe this is in politic, but I, 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 I know how good I am. I always have. Yeah. So, you know, I wanted to ask you about I Dreamed of Africa because I feel like you had an experience there where... You know, I remember um, the director says to me, Lance, I want to talk to you about your role because you have a very, very important role because you represent Africa. And I'm like, wow, a servant with a handful of lines represents Africa. And he's saying this to me thinking that I'm too stupid to know that that's... An insult. <laughs> like, he like, actually thinks he's giving me a compliment. And I'm like, wow, this is how we're starting. Okay, fair enough. That's what it is. I mean, an- another perfect example. We were shooting this funeral scene when the, the, one of the leads of the film, Cookie's son, uh, dies of snakebite. And we're shooting this funeral scene, and he wanted to make sure that everything was perfect. So he, did, he, he had classical music running through the, through the entire time we were shooting. Nobody was allowed to talk in between takes as he was doing all the close-ups of the white people. Then we broke for lunch. Then we came back into the close-ups with black people. Just quick, 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 quick. People talking and whatever. I was like, wow. 
Really? You know, for me, it doesn't matter how small the role is. Like, I, I care. So, and it wasn't like it was, I mean, it was, it was especially as, as one of the first leads, you know, prominent roles I ever had in the film. Uh, it was not a bad role, don't get me wrong. Um, but there was a scene where an elephant is supposed to come raid the garden and tear through Cookie's vegetables. Right. And the way the set was set up was it's, it's an open-air kitchen that, that looks out on the garden. So she's supposed to see this and run toward the elephant to try to get it to stop. And he said he wanted me in the, the director. kitchen. The director, I'm sorry. Hugh said he wanted me in the kitchen. I said, well, and, and the way it was written was that um, her husband runs and pulls her away. And I said, well, we've already established that I'm very protective of her. I'm Kenyan, so I know how dangerous elephants are. So when I see her do this, I am going to run and try to stop her. He said, well, you can't do it. I said, but it doesn't make sense for me to be there. Well, you have to be there. And he walked away from me. I was livid. He made it clear that the conversation was over. He was not going to stand while I argued with him anymore. Which is such an interesting thing, because basically you're saying, like, uh, take me out of the scene or use me correctly, which is a pretty selfless thing to do. It's like... Well, it's not selfless if how you're going to show up is like a prop. Right. Because it makes me look bad. I'd rather not be there than look bad. Exactly. It's, it's, you know, one of the classic things that I learned in in drama school and which which has made me so adamant about making sure I have choices before I show up and, and fighting for my choices is that if you're bad because of a director's direction, people don't see a great actor who is directed poorly. They just see shitty acting. Right. So I'm, you know, it's, it's all about protecting my work because, you know, your work is your, it's not just your legacy, but it's about the next job. You know, yeah. so much of my film career is because of guys, is because of young guys, young white guys who love the wire, who don't think about race the same way, who've offered me roles. Right. I mean, thank God for millennial white men. <laughs> I'm not kidding. You know, it, it just makes me wonder when those kinds of things happen, what, how you sort of deal with it and cope with it. As the, my, my only response is, as best you can. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean you know, it's, it's really interesting. I saw, uh, inter- interestingly enough, it was Jamie uh, Hector who showed this to me, a video of Denzel Washington talking about an early audition he had for a movie. It was fascinating to me. And Viola Davis is next to him on stage. And he was talking about, uh, it was, um, I can't remember the name of the film, but the film was a, uh, about a, uh, a black man who gets lynched, but it's supposed to be comedy. It had something to do with that. And the guys in the room are trying to explain it to them, to him, and about, trying to explain to him why it's funny. And Denzel, Denzel said, what he said to them was, oh, you mean like if the people go into a room and they think it's a shower and then they find out that it's like poison. <laughs> the gas. He said, yeah. And he said it was a lot of Jewish people in the room. He said, so, you know, you don't think that's funny? I don't think this shit is funny. And so he ended up getting off of the role and he turned it down. And then the next role he got was when he played Stephen Biko and got his first Academy Award nomination. But when I saw how he handled that, there was a part of me that said, I mean, as brilliant as he is an actor, and he is brilliant, but I was like, that's why he's a fucking star. Because he can do that. It wouldn't occur to me to do something like that. Well, yeah, I mean, there's such a desire to be in this craft and to to do what you love to do, and, and that's, I guess... Yeah, I just, want, I just that, want to do great work. That, that emphasizes my entire point, which is, 
you know, how much do you have to accept to, to be able to do work and to be able to work and have a career that is, uh, is that bias or that unfairness? You know, th- those parts to me well, are... Well, I mean, it, it dep- you know, there's a certain role, you know, like, like there have been things that I've said no to yeah. because of that. Yeah. I mean, it was a reading of, uh, it was a script, I think it was Mel Gibson, but it was a few years ago. And, and, and when I read the script, just the way the black character was handled, I just didn't like it. And, because, and he was going to be there and all these stars were reading it and it was supposed to be a big opportunity. I'm like, no, I am not doing that. I'm not going to sit there and read that role. And the problem is that so often it's veiled as the selfless, good Negro but it's the, that particular situation, it was, it, he was dealing with racism and he, the white savior had to come in and save him. I'm like, no, I play that role if he, he, he put that person on the ass or if he, if he went down kicking and screaming. Right. Do you know what I mean? You know, it's, it's fascinating to talk to somebody who is this honest about their career and the things they've had to deal with and the way things work. And, you know, you were on this series Fringe for a, a while and you very candidly and honestly have talked about it as the series from hell. Yeah, for me, that, that, it wasn't a great experience. Right, and, and I think that it's, it's interesting to talk about when you've got this seemingly great job on network television and it turns out the day-to-day grind nearly destroys your enthusiasm for the thing you do for a living. Uh, yeah, when it was over, I didn't want to, act, I didn't want to be an actor So anymore. tell me about that, because to go to work to try to do the thing you love and, and to realize that it's just not that situation and you have to put up with it. You know, for me, I... I really, when I got out of drama school, I wanted to be the best actor in the world, literally. And even, even when I was in my training, I, th- I thought, I tried to approach my training from that point of view. So I looked at who I considered that, and I broke down those qualities, and I tried to work on that every day. And for me, those Meryl Streep and Daniel Day Lewis and Brando, um, and, to, and to a certain extent, uh, a different, different style, but, but, but um, uh, Paul Newman and, and, um, and Kathy Bates and um, John Voight and uh, Dustin Hoffman. Those are my big ones. And so when I got out of school, every role I approached that way, and it didn't matter how big or small it was. And to me, it was like every scene matters because my work matters. So for people who are there just just. Um, to be a star, to be number one on the call sheet just for attention, and they don't give a fuck about the work, really? It's devastating, especially when it's day after day after day, and that goes on for months, and then it goes on for years. And you have a contract. And, and, they're, and they're rewarded for their bad behavior, and you're, and you're not rewarded for complaining. It damages your spirit, and it takes a while to recover from that. And that's what happened with me. It took me, it took me a year not only to get my self-confidence back, but to get my work ethic back because I stopped caring because I would put all this effort into try to preparing and whether it was constant script changes or whether it was getting on set and and, uh, actors being at each other's throats or actors spending so much time trying to be the center of attention that you can't focus before every freaking take. So how do you sort of get that back once once it's taken away? By realizing that you can't change it. It happened. Right. Because the thing about the thing is, if I if I had been independently wealthy, we wouldn't be sitting here talking right now because I wouldn't be acting anymore. But it was the same situation as when uh, I was ducking the landlord. I don't have any I don't have any place else to go. This is it for me. For me, being an actor, that's it. Everything else is 
gravy. So you did a play called Seven Guitars. Yes. An August Wilson play. And for people who don't yes. know, you played the lead, this guy Floyd, right? Yes. And he's a musician, and he's just gotten out of jail, and he's, uh, he's collecting his, his girl and his band, and he's going to go make it in Chicago as an artist. And it's a pretty wordy play. I would Very wordy. And I was hoping you could tell the story briefly of, of the time you went up, which for people who don't know theater speak, it's when you forget your lines. And I get the sense that you are someone who works really, really hard on knowing their lines. Yeah. And I wonder if you could talk about your experience of so that doing all the, the preparation in the world and then being in that situation. It was horrifying. First of all, I hadn't been on stage since um, Mark Anthony. So that's seven years. And I did the play for all the wrong reasons. And... What part of what's a, such a shame about that is that it was kind of a miserable experience for me, and it's probably the greatest theater production I've ever been a part of. It's the only time I feel like I've been on stage since I graduated that my performance was hit or miss. When I was on, I was great. But when I was off, it was just I was just I was I wasn't. Back up for a minute and and just talk about how much work you do put into knowing your lines and because I. I, I do you, are you someone that has sort of a hard time like locking those in initially? And then? I'm not a fast study. In order to give the kind of performance that I like to give, the last thing I ever want to be thinking about is my lines. The only thing I want to be thinking about is what I want and, and, and how what the person is saying to me is affecting me. Let, let me put it this way. I'm not saying that I can't be good. I'm not saying I can't be really good. But why not be great? And I know if I, I know if my lines are, are second nature, I can be great because I can be paying attention to the right thing. So what happened the night that I literally went away? I, I, we, I don't remember how many weeks into the show, but uh, it was it was uh, it was the first scene after intermission, and I storm on with Canewall in a rant, and I mean, it's like a it's a good half a page monologue, and literally in the middle of a sentence, I wasn't thinking. I was just blah blah blah. blah. And it was just, it just wasn't there. And my mouth just stopped moving. And I didn't know where it was. And I literally backed up a couple steps and started from early sentence and I got stuck, stuck in the same place. Really? So it was like some weird neurological oh, it block. It was bad. And then I looked at the audience and I said, I'm sorry. You and did. I did. Because at first I, I'm looking at the other actors and they're looking at me with terror in their eyes. Because no one's helping you. They couldn't, they couldn't, there was no way to effectively help me. And oh I started talking again. I don't know how, but I got back somehow, and I finished the performance. And from that night on, I was all, every night, I was terrified. It just, it just made it that much harder. Because, because I was terrified. when it happened, I would, it was completely... Nothing like that had ever happened to me before. Right. Yeah. And, and I was it used probably to, opened up the fear of this could happen at any time. Yeah, yeah. Because it was one of those things where... You know, you know, you 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 de- you design a plan, you work the plan of preparation, and, and you train your brain like a muscle, so that the skills in there. So so, anytime that it's, it doesn't work the way you, do you know what I mean? After you're used to it working and working and working, it short circuits your your. It's not only short circuits your nervous system, but it short circuits your confidence. I remember the next day though, Ruben had us sitting in a circle, and. I was just in tears. I was trying not to cry, and I was crying. Do you think it'd be 
fair to call you a perfectionist by nature in, in terms of the approach to Around work. this? Yes. Yeah. Around my, yeah. So I'm curious about that dovetailing with your fringe experience. And I wonder if those two experiences were actually great opportunities for growth because you had to probably sort of examine the, the very tenets on what you, you, you know, you'd built your craft on. Here's how, here's how they were opportunities for growth. Don't, let, don't allow myself to be in that position again. Because one of, the, one of the things about Seven Guitars is that we only had two and a half weeks of rehearsal before we went to previews, which for play that dense is crazy. Every night I was kind of, it was kind of an effort to make sure that I remember, knew my lines. Really? And then, and then it, was, it, was, it was a constant fight between me trying to be with the, the, uh, the, the, the lead, the female lead, my girlfriend, and me being in my head, like looking at the lines on the page in my head, which is something I'd never, 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 never had done before. So you couldn't enjoy the, the whole experience because you couldn't stay no. present? No, I wonder if your relationship with your own self-critic had to sort of go through some transformations with, with these two experiences. Well, you know, it's interesting because I do think that I learned something. Um... And the place where I feel like I see it the most is on Bosch. Because I'm not so, like on a wire, it was like before every take, you can't talk to me because I'm, I'm in it. I'm in it. No, 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 I'm in it. I'm in it. Boom, I'm the guy. Do you know what I mean? Whereas Bosch, now I can be joking around and then I can go, but I can go, you know what I mean? I, I'm, in some ways, my work is, um, not only is my uh, persona on set uh, looser, but I feel like in some ways my work is more, is even more nuanced than it used to be. Counterintuitive to what maybe you thought it would yeah, be, like yeah. you work a little less hard and you actually get better. Because I don't, I don't worry, I, you know, when we were on the script, I work as hard as I can, but then I do the best that I can. But the thing, but the thing that I do do is I know that my brain goes to a different place rather than panic. I mean, I'll have panic, but then I'll, it's like, okay, that's just a feeling. It sounds like you used to let the fear or the panic get the best of you. Yeah. And now you're able to, you're able to quiet that self-critic a little bit. Enough to, enough to use another part of my brain. Yeah. Yeah. Is that the challenge as you get older? Is like to to not only to not only calm down, relax into yourself a little bit, but also to to be able to question you know the stories that you've told yourself. Oh, I see. I wouldn't say that that's the challenge. I'd say that's a gift. Yeah. I think I feel like that's the challenge when you're younger. I mean, it's well, that's the challenge of being a freaking human being. But uh, but uh, I feel what one of the gifts as I've gotten older is how how much more. Uh, I don't even know that I want to say more comfortable I am with myself because uh, I'm, I'm not that comfortable with myself. But um, I, I'm comfortable with my uncomfortableness, if you know what I mean. Right. You're yeah. willing to sit in it rather than the panic making you push it away. Yeah. yeah. Well, listen, it's been fascinating talking to you. And, and I think that I admire not only the work I've seen you do, but, but hearing your backstory and reading about you I also admire the tenacity with which you've created this career out of a situation where a lot of people just would have maybe fallen into that working class life. And, and, it, and it's fascinating to hear your story. Thanks. Thanks for doing this. It's been my pleasure.
Hey folks, that's our show. I really enjoyed talking to Lance, and I enjoyed the opportunity to go back and watch some episodes of The Wire again, which was one of my favorite shows a while back. And I also got to discover his newest show on Comedy Central Corporate, which is great and totally unexpected. So check those out, and also check out another one of my favorite shows, Bosch on Amazon, where Lance plays Chief Irvin Irving. In fact, just type Lance Reddick into YouTube. I guarantee that you'll be drawn in just like I was. So as you know, I've been doing this show for a while now, and one of the great joys of the show is that I get drawn in to the lives and careers and creative paths of all these iconic individuals I get to talk to. And if you're new to the show, or if you haven't quite gone all the way in, here are some ways to really enjoy off camera. First off, make sure you subscribe to this podcast you're listening to right now. That way, you'll never miss an episode being delivered straight to your mobile device or however you listen to podcasts. And while you're there subscribing, leave us a rating and a review so that other people can find out what we're doing here. Also, Off Camera is a television show, and you can find us every week on DirecTV's audience network and also on AT&T Uverse. And if you don't have DirecTV, you can also find us through our website at offcamera.com. We have this really unique television subscription plan, which is a great deal because for only $4.99 a month, you can have access to every show we've ever done. You can watch it as many times as you want on any device that you want, and it's a great way to really see what we've been doing here over the last few years. So you just go there and there's no limit to how many episodes you can watch for your 4.99 a month. So check that out. It's a great way to support the show and to see what you've been listening to on this podcast. Also, we're all over social media, so if you're liking what we're doing, take a minute and tell other people so that they can find us. We are off camera show at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and I am Sam Jones on Twitter and Sam Jones Pictures on Instagram. If you follow any of those accounts, you're going to see behind the scenes pictures and you're going to get links to the latest episodes, and it's a great way to stay in touch with the show, but it's also a great way to share it with other people. So if there's a guest you want to see or a question you have or just something you want to say about the larger world of what we're doing here with storytelling, then go on social media and tell us all about it. I want to thank everyone that helps me on this show each week to bring it to you. We have Nathan Shields, Crawford Chippy, Michaela Galvin, Sasha Snow, and Kara Johnson. These folks work really hard, and I could not make the show without their help. And mostly thank you for tuning in and for checking us out and for hopefully telling your friends about us. We want to keep this thing going for as long as possible, so... Thank you for your support and for listening, and we'll see you next week off camera.